The most difficult part of trying to think about a service for today was the idea of trying to come up with something that hadn't been said a hundred times over, that we hadn't heard in a hundred different places. This has been Earth Week and uh, the celebration of the planet, the interdependent web. How many of us at some point in our life were a part of an effort to in some small way get back to the land? Whether growing our own uh, tomatoes or sewing something that we wore or building a piece of furniture. We had a lot of big dreams. Historically, Unitarian Universalists have been the bulk of the tree huggers in the religious world, which is a really rare thing these days. At this point in time, only 47% of Democrats think that global warming is a major issue, and only 12% of Republicans. Maybe it is, maybe it isn't. We have cared mightily about the planet and been involved in unnumbered organizations. We've made efforts to address the concerns of nature and the planet and the world around us We're fascinated by her and marvel at the vast array of variety. To quote anthropologist, ecologist, and poet Lauren Isley, every time we walk along a beach, some ancient urge disturbs us so that we find ourselves shedding shoes and garments or scavenging among seaweed and whitened timbers like the homesick refugees of a long war. We have loved and tried to honor her. So what can I say about the earth that's new and different, enlightening, evocative, inspiring, Quite possibly nothing. But here's my best shot. We call the earth our home. We call her our mother. But we are not her family. Simply put, the earth is going to be fine whether we stop global warming, carbon emissions, over-harvesting, vanishing animal populations or not. Unless, of course, we simply blow her to smithereens. The planet will find a way to reestablish stasis. With or without the participation of various life forms, including humans, Nature will do what nature does best. 
She will take back what is hers and us with it if she must. How many of you have ever tried to create a space in what had previously been woods or wilderness or a wild area? What happens if the space is not attended? It doesn't take long for nature to take it back. My family has a modest little house in the pine woods of southern Louisiana. And for 20 years, my parents whittled at pushing the woods back. They made steady progress, but it took frequent tending and devotion to the idea of maintaining this natural look, but having the woods and the wildness of the woods cleared farther and farther away from the little house. It only took one storm to undo all of that. I do realize that I'm not telling you anything new or anything that you haven't already heard and experienced yourself. We all know that nature cannot be tamed, nor is she amenable to being contained or abused. It would seem these days that her patience is wearing thin. And who can blame her? The planet has supported us and raised us up since we first came out of the ooze (laughs) and tried in ways both harsh and gentle to teach us how to work with her rather than against her. In return, we have refused to listen, have insisted that we can do things our own way and use her as we see fit. The result is that one-third of the world's resources have been used up in the last 30 years. A third in 30 years. This is from the BBC. One calculation estimates that if we keep using resources the way that we are today, within 50 years' time, It would take a whole other earth to support and sustain the population. Now, off the top of my head, I don't know where we're going to get one of those. We're not her family. We don't treat family that way. Even when we look to our relatives for support and for resources, we don't drain them to utter emaciation. And they most often aren't prepared to destroy us in reply. And most significantly, our biologies are different enough that she can reinvent herself a million ways that would not support our survival. 
with the patience of a glacier and the wind against a mountain, nature could beat us handily at any time she chooses. And may very well do so. Now, I don't intend for this to be just statements of doom and gloom. Um, I'm merely pointing out that even if we rectify every crucial environmental issue we're facing, there's no guarantee that the earth won't spew us out. If we fix every one of them, there's no guarantee that that the race will survive. Lauren Isley wrote, the one great hieroglyph, nature, is as unreadable as it ever was, and so is her equally wild and unpredictable offspring, man. So what am I trying to say? Only two things. First, I believe if we have a purpose on this earth, we're here to learn. We're here to learn how to be in relationship with ourselves, with each other, and with other. And we're here to learn how to manage our responsibilities. Manage our responsibilities on all levels, from personal to global and beyond. Each lesson we learn about ourselves, we carry in some way into our relationships with everything and everybody else. Whether we work from the inside out or the outside in, the lessons wind up being reflexive. The same thing with responsibility. When we're responsible with caring for ourselves, it's, we learn better how to care for the things around us. And the more we learn about caring for the things around us, the more we learn about caring for ourselves. We're in school. We're here to learn. Our inner lives, our deepest lessons, affect how we move through the world, how we think of the world, and as, as well as how we treat the world and everything in it. We're here to learn how to do all of these things better. No matter how, how great of a job you're doing right now, as long as we're here, we're in school, and we're here to keep learning. As we heal ourselves, we heal our planet. As we care for each other, we care for the world. Now, just generally speaking, the more I meditate, the more energy I have. The more energy I have, the more efficiently I function. The more efficiently I function, the less crowded my thoughts are. The less crowded my thoughts are, 
the more likely I am to notice things like turning the lights off when I leave a room or being able to organize my thoughts so that my errands do work into uh, an efficient run rather than a lot of running here and there and, and just drinking gasoline. The way we see and understand life as a whole has much to do with our success as a species. But I think there's a short story by the man I've been quoting, Lauren Isley, that demonstrates my point a little bit better. This point being we're here to learn also that life generates life. He, write, he wrote, I saw a judgment upon life and that it was not that was not passed by human. I shall never see an episode like it again if I live to be a hundred. You may put it that I had come over a mountain, that I had slogged through fern and pine needles for half a long day, and that on the edge of a little glade with one long crooked branch extended across it, I had sat down to rest with my back against a stump. Through accident, I was concealed from the glade, although I could see into it perfectly. The sun was warm there, and the murmurs of forest life blurred softly away into my sleep. When I awoke, dimly aware of some commotion and outcry in the clearing, the light was slanted down through the pines in such a way that the glade was lit like some vast cathedral. There, on the extended branch, sat an enormous raven with a red, squirming nestling in his beak. The sound that awoke me was the outraged cries of the nestling's parents, who flew helplessly in circles about the clearing. The sleek black monster was indifferent to them. He gulped wetted his beak on the dead branch and sat still. Up to that point, the little tragedy had followed the usual pattern, but suddenly, out of all that area of woodland, a soft sound of complaint began to rise. Into the glade fluttered small birds of half a dozen varieties, drawn by the anguished outcries of the anguished parents. No one dared to attack the raven. But they cried there in some instinctive misery, the bereaved and the unbereaved. The glade filled with their soft rustling and their cries. They fluttered as though to point their wings at the murderer. There was a dim, intangible ethic he had violated and they knew it. He was a bird of death. And he, the murderer, the black bird at the heart of life, sat there glistening in the common light, formidable, unmoving, unperturbed, untouchable. 
The sighing died. It was then I saw the judgment. It was the judgment of life against death. I will never see it again so forcefully presented. I will never hear it again in notes so tragically prolonged. For in the midst of protest, they forgot about the violence. There in that clearing, the crystal note of a song sparrow lifted hesitantly in the hush. And finally, after painful fluttering, another took the song, and then another, the song passing from one bird to another, doubtfully at first, as though some evil thing were being slowly forgotten, till suddenly they took heart and sang from many throats joyously together as birds are known to sing. They sang because life is sweet and sunlight beautiful. They sang under the brooding shadow of the raven. In simple truth, they had forgotten about the raven. For they, they were singing now the songs of life. They were singers of life, not death. Life attracts life. Life generates life. Death and fatalism can do nothing but generate more lifelessness. So as we create life within and immediately around us, that life will call and invite more life. Like the choir sang at the very beginning of the service, uh, we're living on a living planet. And we can change the universe by being who we are if we are genuinely who we are. And that's our responsibility. It's from that space that we can expand to take care of more and be responsible with the world. The second point that I wish to make is this. The fuller our spirits are, the less we need externally in order to feel satisfied or content. In very real ways, a personal spiritual integrity and maintenance reduces our carbon footprint. The single most significant thing that we can do for the planet is consume less of everything. In last week's Time magazine, there was an article titled 10 Fixes for the Planet. In the article, we're told that huge ships that carry containers actually get 37 feet to a gallon of gasoline. Now think about how many of these go back and forth across the ocean carrying everything that we use. The chief scientist for Oceana said if the shipping industry were a country, it would be number seven 
in carbon emissions. Do you really need that new fill in the blank? Do you really need an extra helping of fill in the blank? Do you really need to go right now to fill in the blank? The more aware we are on any level, the more effective we can be on every level. It seems reasonable to think that when we're genuinely at peace with ourselves, we can become better house guests here on the planet, on this blue boat home. With all the bungling we have done up until now, a course correction can't come too soon. Again, quoting Isley, if it should turn out that we have mishandled our lives as several civilizations before us have done, it seems a pity that we should involve the violet and the tree frog in our departure. Earth will make her way with or without us. If we would make our way with her, if we would take seriously the responsibility of generations that follow us, if we would save frog and flower, let us work from both inside and out. 